Gracious Lord, thank you for your faithfulness toward us, and thank you for your faithful words. Uh, Lord, we want to know you more, and to know you more, we want to know your word um, more in depth, because you reveal yourself in the pages of our Bibles, Lord, and I pray that even as we study how you operated um, in the past to not only bring about the writing, but also the preservation of your um, scriptures. Lord, may that encourage us, and um, I pray that you would help us to, to profit from the, this teaching. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so you have your notes there. If you don't, there's some there in the back, and so you can follow along. The first concept that we will see here is canonicity. What does that mean? It refers to the church's recognition and acceptance of the books of the scriptures as God's inspired word. So the term itself comes from the Greek word canon, which originally meant a reed or a measuring rod that was used, uh, and that since that rod was frequently used to me- as a measuring stick, the word began to convey the idea of a standard or a rule, or they said a rule of faith. The word canon is also used four times in the New Testament, and Paul employs them in 2 Corinthians 10. Maybe we can go there. 2 Corinthians 10. In verse um, 13, where Paul says, but we will boast beyond our measure. So that word measure there is the word canon. But within the measure, the sphere which God appointed to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. Um, Then in Galatians 6.16, he also uses it to refer to a moral standard or a rule by which the believers live by. Let's turn there. Galatians... and we'll look at verse 16. Mm. It says here, and those who you will walk by this rule, the word there, um, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So what is referring that walking by this rule? It's walking by what God has inspired and walking by what we consider scripture. So he uses it to refer to the moral standard or rule for the believers to live by. All of this illustrates by the end of the apostolic age that the term was predominantly understood as a word that referred to metaphorically to a rule or a measure or a boundary or a standard. It was not until the middle of the fourth century AD that the term was used to speak of the authoritative collection of books recognized as a product of divine inspiration. Now, I want you to be paying attention that, that this word recognized keep, keeps coming up because the church does not uh, decide which part is scripture and which part is not. They are simply recognizing what God already has established. 
So in fact, Athanasius, um, this one of the uh, church fathers that lived from 209.5 to 307.3, first applied the term um, canon to scripture in the decrees of the Council of Nicaea, published shortly after 30, uh, 350 AD. So kind of a little bit of background here in church history. Um, in this council, they discussed which books would be part of the canon. In these writings, he referred to the shepherd of Hermas as not being part of the canon. So there are some books that have uh, historical or religious value that um, it, the church discussed. Is this part of the canon? Is this part of scripture? Um, but then shortly thereafter, in a different council, the Council of Laodicea, they use the terms canonical and non-canonical to refer to individual books, either as accepted part of the Bible or rejected as not inspired by God. It is in this sense that the term has been understood in the references to Scripture. These are the primary ways in which the canon has historically been defined. The traditional view of the Roman Catholic Church is that the Bible is an authoritative collection of writings, and we agree with that. But um, in their understanding is, is that the Bible contains the book that the church has collected and authoritatively determined and affirmed as a scripture. According to this view, the church decides which books belong to the Bible. The biblical view understands that the canon is a collection of divinely authoritative writings. The authority to decide which books are and are not part of Scripture, it, it comes directly from the Lord. It doesn't come from the church. So it is not the church or the people of God that determines which books are inspired by God and thereby Scripture. The writings themselves are vested with authority of God on the basis of divine inspiration. They are the word of God because they were written under the Spirit's inspiration. The people of God then, uh, the church of the New Testament and then, the, and then Israel in the Old Testament, merely recognize the authority present in this, on those writings. Canonicity is based on the fact that inspiration, not the process or agency that did the collecting. Now, if the scriptures are indeed inspired by God, as we've been discussing, then the significant question arises, which ones are inspired? Historically, it was important for the people of God to determine which books God had inspired and which ones were recognized as authoritative. So it is important to note that religious councils at no time had any power to cause books to be inspired. They did not inspire scripture. Rather, they simply recognized that which God had inspired at the exact moment the books were written. Jews and conservative Christians alike have recognized 39 books in the Old Testament as inspired, and evangelical Protestants have recognized 27 books for the New Testament. The Roman Catholics, they have 80, 80 books because they recognize the Apocrypha, where this extra biblical uh, text, as semi-canonical. So they're not as um, trustworthy as the scriptures, but they're kind of halfway. They're a little bit inspired, according to their definition. 
Now, I, I don't know if, how many of you have looked at a, a, a Catholic Bible. I don't know how many here and kind of followed. Do you remember seeing some extra books there? Um, can you recall any of them? Maccabees, first and second Maccabees. Thomas, the Gospel of Thomas was there in the Catholic Church? I didn't know. I thought it was kind of a new fad that people were just following. <laughs> what else? Yeah, and um, so I, do you ever had a discussion with someone about this? As you, you found those books, how did that go about? What did they believe? Yeah. Very good. Uh, so Jonathan is talking about the recent experience that he had um, with someone having this discussion, which ones, which books. Um, and he's saying that really has to do with the authors. And I actually encourage you to, to go and read some of these. You, you will see the stark difference. Like they have a, a, some extra book, some extra chapters on the book of Esther. Um, and you read it, it's like there is a stark difference in the writing. It, it's just absurd. You're like, boy, the, this is not the same person writing here. The story kind of contradicts other principles of Scripture. Uh, Maccabees have this um, thing on, on uh, not a resurrection, um, like worship of the dead, that they have that offering prayers to dead people. Um, so the concept that a scripture never uh, encourages. Um, there is historical value in these books, but they are not a scripture. Right? I remember having to read uh, First and Second Maccabees uh, just to try to understand the intertestamental period where the Old Testament was finished, and then when Jesus came, so we have about 400 years gap there. And so those books kind of provide some historical context for it. Now, they're not inspired, so they have a lot of things from a human, purely from a human perspective, how they interpreted these things, which doesn't mean that God wanted uh, those things to be that way. Yep. They, they make a distinct, I mean, it's a, I think with anything with Catholicism, right, there's what people are taught and what they actually believe and how much they know we, we don't know. Um, in the Catholic doctrine, these books are not um, 100% inspired, basically. That's where they're getting at. They're semi-canonical. They're not canonical. So from the, their perspective, but if you talk to, you know, a, a Catholic person that is not, uh, not a priest or someone that has gone to uh, study their theology, they'll just say, no, this is, this is part of the Bible. Yep, yep. You, you, it's, as you start reading, you, you notice the difference, you know, and the church in the past uh, picked up on those things fairly quickly. Um, some, some of these books claiming to be canonical had heresies on them. Um, so to deviate and kind of contradict scripture. So um, how then we determine the Old Testament canonicity? So uh, the Masoretic Hebrew text of the Old Testament 
Um, it's the, the major manuscripts that we have available today of the Old Testament is this Masoretic text. So it's dated right about 800, the year 800. Um, and it was divided in 39 books, uh, divided into three categories. And even Jesus referred to this kind of division here. There's the law, which was the Pentateuch, the, five, the first five books of the Bible. We had the prophets um, in the Hebrew Bible that was not just Isaiah and the things that we would think of as prophets. It included Joshua. It included Judges, First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and the major and the minor prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel, Hosea, and all those, uh, and the minor prophets. And then they had this third category that they called the writings. The writings, and sometimes they called the Psalms, and that's what how Jesus referred to, which included the poetry and the wisdom books, the Book of Psalms, Proverbs, Job, and then they have this fourth category, uh, the rolls, um, which includes the Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther, and then historical books is Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and First and Second Chronicles. Originally, these 39 books were counted as 24 by combining First and Second Samuel. They you know, didn't have divisions between those. They considered one volume. First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and then the 12 minor prophets, um, like Hosea, Daniel, and... Uh, no, Daniel is not one of the minor ones. <laughs> uh, but Hosea... Amos, Zechariah, all of those were considered one book. Twelve of these prophets were considered one book. So that's why in their Bible, you see less books. doesn't mean that they have a, a different Bible from ours. It just means that they organized it in a different way, and uh, they just titled it differently. By the time of the New Testament, this threefold division was recognized um, for instance, Luke 24, 44. Someone want to open there? Jesus is talking to his disciples in the road to Emmaus, and he refers to this uh, division of Scripture. And he's referring specifically to uh, the Old Testament, because at that time, we didn't have anything written so far when Jesus was uh, saying these things. So Luke 24, 44. If someone found it, they can read it. So Jesus is saying, you know, all these things, the law, the prophets, uh, and the Psalms talked about me um, so that scriptures will be fulfilled. Other designations such as the scripture, John uh, chapter 10 refers to in, in this way. The sacred writings, 2 Timothy 3.15 talks, talks about that, use that terminology, and suggests generally accepted the Old Testament canon. This threefold division was attested by uh, the historian Josephus, was a Jewish historian from the first century. Uh, he was contemporary of the apostles. Um, and then the bishop of Melito of Sardis in the second century, and Tertullian in the second and third century also acknowledged this division. They had this council of Jamnia. Um, and I don't know how many of you heard this before. I never heard it until <laughs> I went to seminary. 
uh, 90 AD is considered the occasion whereby the Old Testament canon was publicized, publicly recognized while debating the canonicity of several books. Um, you know, one of the most contested ones was the Book of Esther because it didn't include God's name on it or even the word God was not present. So it was questioned. Now, the Council of Jamnia did not determine the Old Testament. At that time, at in the year 90 AD, it was well established. We already had copies of, of these books um, that were recognized. So the Dead Sea Scrolls, for instance, is dated from 200, 200 years before Christ. That's pretty amazing. And it, it is, it, they compared the text with the Masoretic text because it wasn't found until um, the last century. Um, and they found and they started comparing. It was amazing how similar the text was. So for, I mean, eight, year 800 to year 200 B.C., that's a thousand years gap. And this text being compared, they had a stark um, similarity. In any case, um, there is evidence of the manner in which the Old Testament books were recognized as canonical. Um, this is scholar Laird um, Harris traces the continuity of this recognition. Moses uh, was recognized as writing under the authority of God. Um, you know, let's see some of these passages there with Moses. Just the first one, Exodus 17, 14. Um, then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So there's prophecy coming to God's people, and some of them are dictated basically word by word, and some were written um, from a historical perspective. So the book of Genesis, for instance, God did not, probably didn't dictate word by word to Moses, but he, gathering these historical documents, the Lord inspired him um, to, to be um, in that composition. Um, so the criterion for acknowledging the Pentateuch was whether it was from God's servant Moses. Following Moses, God raised up the institution of prophecy to continue in revealing himself to his people. The prophets to whom God spoke also recorded their revelation. Now, there were warnings that were written uh, against people claiming to be speaking God's word when they never um, had that uh, authority to do so. So the prophets to, prophets to whom God spoke also recorded um, their revelation. Harris concludes, the law was accorded, to, um, accorded the respect of the author, and he was known as God's messenger. Similarly, succeeding prophets were received um, upon due authentication. In their writing, their written works were received with the same respect being received, therefore, as the word of God himself. As far as the witness contained in the books themselves concerned, this reception was immediate. As soon as people start reading it, they acknowledge this is from God. Now, there were specific tests to consider the canonicity. They would have to answer some of these questions, and I listed there for you. Did the book indicate divine authorship? Did they have um, some of these statements, thus says the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to prophet so-and-so. 
So some of these statements are helpful to kind of clue you in that they're inspired. Did it reflect God is speaking through a mediator? Um, it, even though there is a historical account, does that bear um, God's authority on that historical account? Was the human author a spokesman of God? Was he a prophet? Was he an apostle? Um, and then, was the book historically accurate? That is a very interesting one. Because it, as you read some of these apocrypha, you know, these books that are not part of Scripture, you will see the, the historical uh, flaws that you find. Um, and then we have archaeologists coming up with theories, right, about the Exodus, for instance. And they're saying, oh, this can't be. It's talking about here the city of Ramses, Ramses in the Old Testament, in, in, in the Pentateuch. And the city of Ramses wasn't founded until this year here. So um, it contradicts the scripture. This is, you know, the, the history already acknowledges that this, is not, this can't be possible. I'm like, well, the, the problem is not that the Bible is fitting with the historical data. The problem is that you're interpreting the historical data in the, in the wrong way. Um, the Exodus happened in the year 1405, thereabouts. Um, they are thinking that the Exodus happened in the year 1200. It's 200 years difference between those. So it's not that the Bible is inaccurate. It's that people are interpreting these things in a wrong way. So the same thing with the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, destruction of Jericho. Um, historians say, see, like the findings that we got, you know, the, 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 they found some pottery in the city of Jericho. So if you ever get to visit Israel, it's pretty cool. They found some pottery there with uh, these jars with grain. Remember that the Lord said not to take anything from the city. They would have to burn everything down to the ground. Well, it is still burned to the ground to this day. You can find the spots because they never took, never used those seeds. Um, and they're saying, oh, of course this, this, this proved the, the exodus. This, this, doesn't, this contradicts the Bible because it dates for, for about the, the year 1400. And the exodus happened in the year 1200. Well, the problem is not <laughs> that you don't have um, evidence is that you're looking for evidence in the wrong place. It perfectly matches the time that Scripture talks about that when Joshua came and destroyed Jericho. Um, so the finding of those grains, it actually it's interesting that Joshua narrates saying that it was um, during the springtime, the, the harvest time that this happened. Hence, you would see all these pots full of grains and 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 then you can find them there to this day. Is that clear? Um, so it's not about how history contradicts the scripture. Is that sometimes men that are unbelievers, um, people with ill intent, will have a wrong interpretation of history and try to contradict scripture. But it's pretty amazing how if you really come to, to, to look at history, it harmonizes with the Bible. It is, um, it is interesting uh, to reflect on this because um, and here's, here's the modus operandi of, of these scholars that want to discredit the scripture. They say, oh, we don't have enough evidence. We don't have any evidence of 
Joshua in the, 14, uh, in the 12th century. Um, we don't have any evidence, and therefore it disproves the Bible. A lack of evidence does not disprove something, but evidence of the contrary disproves something. We, don't found, we didn't find these things. Like, for instance, some of the modern scholars denying that David ever existed. He was just a fictitious character that the, the Jewish people idolized and made it, him a big deal. Oh, never there was found anything. Well, a few, year, few you know, years later, they found this stone um, where it had a reference to the house of David. And then, so there's a lot of these different things, and maybe next, um, in our next class, I can bring some of these documents uh, that give reference to scripture in history. All right, I'm not going to be detracted here, but this is a, an area that I think it's pretty cool. Um, the other question is, did it reflect a record of actual facts? Um, you know, when it talks about biology, for instance, is it accurate? It is. How was the book received by the Jews. <clears throat> we think about the flood, right? It's, I think it's one of the areas where scientists crush their heads like, well, what? There's all these animals preserved in a, in a boat. Um, I mean, you, you go to the ark, I don't know how many of you have been there, and it's pretty amazing how it, everything harmonizes with uh, history, with biology, and how, oh, the whole human race came, came from two human beings? How come we have all these, the, the different races or the different people groups? Like, well, it is possible, uh, tracing it back. So in summary, the books of the Old Testament were divinely inspired and authoritative the moment that they were written. There was human recognition of the writings. Normally, this was immediate as the people recognized <clears throat> the writers as a spokesman, spokesman from God. And it's the same criteria that you will use um, here in point C for recognizing the New Testament. So one of them was uh, apostolicity. Was the author an apostle or did he have connection with an apostle? For example, Mark wrote his gospel under Peter's authority. So you, you will have a lot of details about what Peter is thinking, what Peter is saying uh, when you read Mark, because Peter basically um, wrote it with Mark. And then Luke wrote under Paul's authority and supervision. He was there. It's interesting that even as you start reading Acts, and it's always in uh, third person, right? He did this, she did that, they did this. And then, I think it's chapter 16, he starts using the first person plural, we. Then we were there, because at that point, Luke joined them in the, in the missionary trips, Paul and the missionary trips. Um, was um, acceptance. Was the book accepted by the church at large? The recognition given by a particular book by the church was important. By this, canon false books were rejected but it also delayed the recognition of some legitimate books. Um, for instance, the James was questioned uh, because it, it, it had an appearance contra apparent contradiction with salvation by works, which Paul had already established that and no one is saved by works, but saved by grace. And then 
there comes James and says, well, you, wanna, you show me that faith that you have without works. Um, and so those books didn't contradict itself. We just had to understand what, one, what the point of view, what James was trying to bring up about and then what Paul was trying to bring about. The content. Uh, what about the content of the book? Did the book reflect consistency of doctrine with what had been accepted as orthodox teaching? The spurious gospel of Peter was rejected as a result of this principle, and so was the gospel of Thomas. You start reading, and there's clear heresy written in these places. And then inspiration. Did the book reflect the quality of inspiration? The Apocrypha and this other group of book here, uh, the Pseudepigrapha, were rejected as a result of not meeting the test. So the book should bear evidence of high moral and spiritual values that would reflect a work of the Holy Spirit. And then uh, the last point here, um, and by the way, I got most of this material from uh, the Biblical Doctrine by John MacArthur and Mayhew. Um, so if you're curious and wanting to read a little bit more on this area, you can um, maybe check the book out in our library and read it. Um, the last point was worship. Was the book used in Christian worship? And since early Christians didn't have their own copies of Scripture, and since many Christians couldn't read it, the inspired books of the New Testament were read in, church, in the churches. So they would, churches would make copies of these letters, for instance, the letters to the Philippians, and it, they continually use, continue to use that letter. So each church had a copy of their own, even though individual believers didn't have a copy. Very rarely you would have uh, individuals with these copies. All right, now let's move on on the preservation of Scripture. Yep, Dylan? I just want to make a comment. Yeah. Um, just on um, a section you referenced a little bit that is compelling to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and between uh, Christ's um, resurrection and his ascension, and you referenced Luke 24 mm-hmm. uh, in your document, or in your write up and your conversation. But just to really highlight, in two places on the road to Emmaus, mm-hmm. he, he said, um, Jesus said, then beginning with Moses, with the prophets, he explained to them all the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so one place with witnesses that Jesus demonstrated his commitment to scripture itself, Old mm-hmm. Testament writings. And then later, uh, in the other appearances, which is the reference you put that you put forth, he did the same. Mm-hmm. I think the source of that is critical. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus himself, uh, who is divine, <clears throat> um, references these books yeah. as his words. Yeah. And, um, and he said to Pilate in his trial, I came to testify to the truth. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> here we have Jesus after the resurrection, uh, proving his divinity by rising from the dead, uh, mm-hmm. before his ascension, testifying uh, amongst witnesses of this nature of Scripture in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just I think it's critical to see that Scripture, that Jesus himself identifies himself throughout all of Scripture. Yeah. And he affirms in this last section that you had referenced, then he opened open their minds uh, to understanding the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And 
<clears throat> affirms the writing of the prophets, Moses, Psalms, um, and the fulfillment of the prophecy. Mm -hmm. Not only is it written, uh, but it's affirmed through the work of Christ. Mm -hmm. How it got fulfilled. Yeah, Dylan is talking about here um, the reference that I made from uh, Luke 24 <clears throat> on um, that the Lord Jesus bared, um, uh, bore the same authority uh, of Scripture for the things that the Jewish people already were familiar with. So by quoting the Moses and you know, the prophets and the Psalms, he was um, giving the credibility that this is, this is the word of God. This is trustworthy. Um, and, and it happened in the same, even in the Old Testament, we had prophets quoting prophets. You read Daniel, and then you said, you know, I remember reading from the prophet Jeremiah, and, you know, that was the word of God, and I, I, made, I, I made the calculations. I just did, I did the math, and I know that it is 70 years. I think the Lord is going to bring us back, and he, it compels him to pray. Um, it, it is pretty amazing how, you know, the authors, even different authors of Scripture, compare um, their own Scriptures with each other. Um, Peter makes reference to Paul's writings as being part of Scripture, and so forth. So, um, I need to give you a specific date. I do not have it. Um, but that was before Christ. The Septuagint was around when Jesus uh, was here, so... It's what they call uh, pseudonyms. Um, people would take on uh, the name of a biblical writer to try to credit their, um, their book when it didn't have any um, res even resemblance with the author's writing. So, all right. Now, I think this, for me, is one of the most um, encouraging uh, parts of this study, the doctrine of preservation. <coughs> How did God preserve? How can one be sure that the revealed and inspired written word of God, which the early church recognized as canonical, has been handed down to this day without any loss of material? Furthermore, since one of the devil's prime concern is to determine the Bible, to undermine the Bible, have the scriptures survived his relentless onslaught? Satan had tried to destroy scripture for many, many years. In the beginning, Satan denied God's word to Eve, even back way back when. Was that really what he said? Are, are these words really authoritative? He later attempted to distort scripture in the wilderness, in his wilderness encounter with Christ. Uh, Matthew 4 describes that, where he's quoting scripture and uh, trying to uh, discredit it. Through King Jehoiakim, he attempted to literally destroy the physical scriptures in Jeremiah 20, uh, 36. It says that they, he was on a hunt to try to burn um, the, the prophecies. The battle for the Bible rages, but God's word has and will continue to outlast its arch enemy and all other enemies. God anticipated man's, Satan's, and demon's malice toward the scripture by making divine promises to preserve his words. The very continued existence of scripture is guaranteed in Isaiah 40, verse 8. So I, I think I copied it for you there. Is that passage that we read last uh, meeting that we had. The grass withered, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The prophet Isaiah 
looking at probably at the hills of Judah, the, the, the mountainous region there, and seeing the difference in the spring. And I showed you this picture of, of beautiful flowers, of uh, everything is green. And then there comes the summer, and this hot, I think is an eastern wind that blows on, on these things, just wither everything away. So the flower withers, and the, uh, the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of God does not change, and it's not lost with time. This even means that no inspired scripture has been lost in the past that it still awaits for rediscovery. The actual content of scripture will be perpetuated both on earth and in heaven. Thus, the purposes of God as published in the sacred writings will never be thwarted even to the last detail. Isaiah 55:11 says, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I have sent. So the words that were inspired by God, they will do what they uh, propose to do. Let's define then what preservation, uh, and this is how uh, MacArthur and Mayhew define it. Preservation as a doctrine refers to the acts of God whereby he has preserved through the centuries the written record of his special revelation for his people. It begins with specific instructions we, he, have, he gave to his people to preserve it. It also includes the providential way in which God has kept his word by diligent efforts of human agents through the millennium. It began when it was originally written, and it has continued through time as it has been gathered into the collection of canonical writings extant that we have today. So um, let's move then to point B here, uh, the biblical teaching on preservation. Do the scriptures say anything concerning their own preservation through the process of transmission. What is transmission? Is from one generation to the next, how the passage, the prophet Isaiah got passed from the next generation to, um, and then from that generation to the next one. And then the translation, it's when they get the original text and bring it to different languages such as Portuguese, English, and the ones that we have um, available. So an examination of the Bible says, does indicate that God has promised to preserve his word forever in heaven. So Psalm 119, verse 89, um, says, forever, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. So in the original, the term firmly fixed literally means to be established or set in a place, um, set in a lasting place. This is it's kind of a similar to a pillar that is permanently placed within the building when constructed. So, in the same way, God's word is forever fixed like this pillar. But the key here that the verse says that God's word is fixed in heaven, not on earth. What does that imply? Well, that in heaven, God's word is perfectly preserved. But we don't have the original copies that God has published, the original authors published to this day. We never found it um, and probably won't find um, any original copies um, that God had. 
But as we will see here, there is plenty of indication that the Lord had preserved um, his word even here on earth. Um, the psalmist goes on to say in, in verse 152 of uh, Psalm 119, Long have I known from your testimonies that you are you have founded them forever. It's kind of the same similar expression to the word of God being fixed in heaven. It is it means that it is unchanging, it is everlasting. But the perfectly preserved form of that word is in heaven. When Isaiah contrasts the transitory nature of man with the eternality of God, um, God's word, uh, he writes, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. God's word is eternal, but the text gives no indication that this eternality includes a promise of a perfectly preserved copy of it here on earth. Um, so this is a key point. So understanding that the promise was that God's word would be preserved in heaven. Now there is implication that God also preserved the, his word here on earth. Jesus speak of the last, lasting nature of God's word in this way in Matthew 5, 18. I do, do have a copy there. If not, just turn to Matthew 5, verse 18. Um, Matthew 5, 18. It says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So two significant points here. The first relates to the terms iota or a dot. Right? The iota refers to the yod, the Hebrew letter yod, which is the smallest letter in the Hebrew Bible. It's, it's basically just a little stroke um, in the, of a pan, and, and that's basically what distinguishes one letter from another. This could be compared to the hook line of the letter R compared to the letter P, right? The little, just when it, one little squiggly line makes it a different letter. So Jesus is saying, you know, like even that little squiggly line that makes the difference between uh, uh, letters and letters, um, it will be preserved. The point that Jesus is making it is clear. What God has, says, has said he means, nothing will prevent God from accomplishing any of it, down to the smallest point. Now, this text is often cited as a proof that God has promised to preserve his written word here on earth. However, a close examination shows that Christ's point is not necessarily that he preserved it in print, but that all of it will be accomplished or come to pass. That's what he said. That none, not an iota, not a dot will be accomplished until it is fulfilled. So still, this statement seems to inherently imply that God will preserve his written revelation. And it's, it's just a matter of logic. How can it be, how can this word that he promised that he would be accomplished, that will be fulfilled, be a witness to mankind if it is not preserved in print? If there is no way of knowing that th those are the word of God, the inspired word of, words of God. So, the promise is about fulfillment, not preservation, but yet we can get some implications from that. Jesus goes on to make the same statement about his own words where he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 
Again, the implication is clear. When Jesus speaks, it is lasting and eternally sure and biting as when God speaks. Contextually, though, Jesus was speaking about the fulfillment of all that he said concerning the events that would take place in that generation and then the one to come in Matthew 24. It was not a promise directly related to the record of his own words or the teachings of the New Testament. Um, so this doctrine also confirms that God will preserve his word forever, unchanged in heaven, even though there is no uh, direct uh, text saying that the Lord would preserve a physical copy of the original for us. Now, because of thousands of Old, Testament, Old and New Testament manuscripts have been recovered and are carefully compared, the best Christian scholars have concluded that the original biblical text has been essentially recovered and reconstituted. So God's word has been preserved perfectly in heaven and faithfully on earth. Now, um, I want you to think about two things here. Um, inspiration. This is something supernatural. Uh, the Lord is acting in a miraculous way to um, bring his scripture to, to bear, to, to pass, right? Um, preservation here on earth is something that is mediated by human beings because we have human beings copying from the original to another one and to another one. And many times in Scripture, and I'll, I'll just close in here, you will see that there's warnings about people taking it away from the text or adding to the text. And um, if the Lord is forbidding these things and his people are listening to these words, they will take it to heart. When they were copying, I mean, I can only imagine what, was, what it was like for a scribe to have... Uh, a, a copy, the original copy of the very words of God, and I'm here, I'm copying it. I really got to make sure that I'm not taking anything out or that I'm adding something that is not there. Um, God takes it very seriously. So that happens through his providence. It means that God's not going to miraculously preserve or make a, a scroll that was written to last for ages. That does not mean that. It does mean that the Lord, through the centuries, as they were being, the text was being copied, um, that uh, text was preserved almost in his, its entirety. Um, I think I, I put here an example of, um, what is it? Um, I think I give an example from 1 Samuel. Yeah, so, for example, at least two words are missing. And here's what, an example of this, um, that some words were not preserved. For example, at least two words are missing from every um, copy of Samuel dating back for at least 2,000 years ago. The significance of these omissions are minimal. Uh, the two words they are missing are numbers related to Saul's age at the time that he became a king and to the number of years that he reigned. Remember that when I went over through 1 Samuel? And I said, you know, even though we can't exactly say with categorically what those letters, those numbers were, we can know by reading Acts because Paul does talk about how old was Saul when he started reigning and then how long, how many years did he reign. So we can reconstruct that passage based on that. Um, 
So it's fairly simple to exercise, um, simply exercise to do the math and discern a limited number of potential readings to make sure of the text. Nevertheless, the missing portion of the text alone proves that the earthly preservation of scripture is not perpetual, miraculous act of God. He has instead entrusted his people with the responsibility to retain his words, his words through diligent human efforts. So he oversaw, you know, took care of the scribes and um, blessed them with wisdom and discernment to see these things. And then we have scholars today trying to reconstruct some of these uh, texts that are difficult. So what are ways that this could be possible? And it's not that hard. Um, to as you look to some a blurred text that it's not clear to try to reconstruct and see the different possibilities. Okay, which one it is more consistent with the rest of Scripture, and they, they can reconstitute those things. All right, um, I'm gonna pause here. We can pick it up next week. Um, I think there are some really um, cool examples of how the Lord preserved. His words, um, even in the past, um, I'll just give you a sneak peek here on Jeremiah 36, where a whole, the whole book was, was burned by one of the kings. And then the Lord had another copy made. And then it was burned again. And the Lord had another copy made, and we have it today preserved. So, all right, let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for uh, your faithfulness. Um, thank you for your love toward us that did not leave us without instruction, that we don't have to wonder um, how should we live, how can we have a relationship with you. You have revealed um, in your words, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, how you came to relate to us and how to even save us from our sin and provide for us forgiveness. Lord, we're thankful that we can uh, bank in these words, um, because not because of the man that wrote it, that we're special, but because the God who um, acted on them um, took care of all the process. Lord, we're thankful for that, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us to love your word even more and to appreciate even more. Um, as we know that, that that is your own very words. Lord, we are thankful. Increase our love for you and our desire to know you more. Even today, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you're dismissed. If you have any questions, feel free to come and...